A Wonder World of Family Entertainment is coming on the Wonder World. This is WORAM and WORFM in New York. Don't get too near the radio. I've got a rotten cold. So stand back. I understand now that uh, many of the scientists have made basic discoveries that colds are transmittable through high-fidelity FM broadcasting. Real high-fidelity. I understand you catch more than colds. Uh, <laughs> by the way, I, did you see that ad at, what was it, Time or Playboy or something? It showed this chick, and it said... Uh, she was, what is it now? She was looking out. She's had a, this, this lingerie on. It said, uh, cures. No, no, I better not, uh, better not quote it, the uh, wild track here. Something about athletes for it. It's the Come Alive Hour here on WOR, dedicated to all of you who are in the Pepsi generation. That's all of us, of course. Oh, rotten, decadent society. Oh, idiotic, silly, decadent, nothing people. Oh, Johnny Carson fans, this is too good for you, what's about to come your way. You won't appreciate the deep, basic sensitivity that's involved. Bring it up there. Oh, well, how scary. For those of you who are thinking in terms of early Christmas shopping... Or straws in the wind of things about to happen. An advertisement for the newest fun game. And one that is sure to be found under many Christmas trees this coming Yuletide. From a Washington, D.C. newspaper, an advertisement headed... For those who think they think, nuclear war. The game to end all games, and the world too. For two to six players, it's mad, it's fun, it's educational. Nuclear war. Nuclear war game gift box includes plastic-coated game cards, population cards, Overkill cards, spinner board with radioactive indicator, and chief of staff playing roles. (laughs) 
money refunded if you don't think that the nuclear war game is the living end. Yes, your money returned with a smile if you don't find this game thoroughly delightful. Alert college stores, inquiries invited, handle the hottest game this fall on the campus. Sound like fun, gang? Let's play nuclear war. Let's see. You're chief of staff now. We'll flip to see who's in charge of overkill here. And uh, I'm uh, going to bomb the Asian continent. And let's see. I wonder how it works. I suppose you spin the radioactive card. It says move to notches past go. You have just destroyed Bulgaria. And, uh, well, it must have something like that. I mean, nuclear war is the is sounds of a great game. And... Uh, you know, uh, I think this is. Uh, I think this is, uh, shows a common, a common uh, American thing. I don't know whether it's necessarily a, tr- a thing that is uh, true outside of our society. The thing that you fear most, you make the most jokes about. That uh, that the fact that uh, there is a game called nuclear war <laughs> is is uh, I think very very interesting and certainly somewhat significant. I suppose. But can you imagine a group of people all sitting down, dressed up, and they're there for a Saturday evening, you know, they've got the bridge mix out, and uh, the radio's playing quietly, the FM over in the corner, some serious WBAI sonata is coming out in stereophonic sound with a serious announcement, you have just heard the music of Prokofiev. And uh, they're sitting there, and they're all dressed up, and Charlie says, hey, how about let's play nuclear war? Come on. What do you say? And of course, this takes place of the old. It takes the place of the old charades. It takes place of uh, monolopy, which they used to play. You know, that's that's true. That that the games of a society always reflect, in a very subtle way, the thing which is the overriding concern of that society at any given time. Monopoly was popular during the Depression, the one time when nobody had any guilt, when no one had any dough at all, and monopoly was all about money. That's all. And so people with no money at all could sit around and play with these little things. They could own Park Avenue. Remember, there was a... Or was it Park Road? Park Avenue. Yeah, you could own Park Avenue, and you could own Atlantic Avenue and Ventnor Avenue. Hey, listen, I'll award you a brass figligy with bronze oak leaf palm if you can tell me what city that Monopoly was about. No, it was about a real city, and those are real uh, streets in that city. And the guy who invented the game lived in that city, and so he used all those various places as part of his game, like Ventnor Avenue. Uh, There was one called uh, Park Avenue. Uh, There was the Waterworks. Remember, you could own the Waterworks? I never heard of a town where you could own the Waterworks, but I guess (laughs) in that town, I don't know. But this was about a real city. Now, the, the point is that during the Depression, when people were really down on their uppers and there was no money at all, and that's what they thought about most of the time, and they also thought a lot about capitalists, too, in those days. From what I've read, a lot of stuff about the political upheavals of that time, and uh, which uh, just is, st- is still even, actually, I suppose, being felt in many ways. There were many people who feared capitalism uh, during that period in American history. And so they had games about capitalism. And Monopoly was only the most successful. Do you know that there were many other games that came out at that time that were monopoly imitators, 
that didn't quite make it, you know, games called money, games called dough, uh, all this stuff, and they sat around and played games that had to do with money because they feared both money and capitalism at the time. And now the idea of us coming up at this time, it's, uh, I think, kind of interesting and a little, may perhaps even a little significant that at this time in history when everybody's getting a little worried and, and uh, the Chinese are, are making loud noises and uh, they're, they're, they've even made a few speeches about nuclear war is good for you. Have you read any of those speeches? You know, most people don't read those speeches all the way through that they print on the third page of the Times, but boy, there was a sockdologer, if I can use an old Indiana expression, about a week or so before the Times went off print. And uh, this guy, the chief of staff of, of I think it was communist, yeah, it was, was communist China, I think he was a chief of staff, I'm not sure of his office, but he was making a speech that said, in effect, one of the ways we can cure our overpopulation is to have a good solid nuclear war. Now, <laughs> uh, yeah, oh, he really did. You know, he went on and on about this, and and this is the kind of double think that George Orwell always wrote about in his his writings that war is good for you, and that death is life, and uh, peace is hate, and hate is love, and all so on down the line. And uh, it it seems somewhat. Did anyone call in and say what town it was? It was not, uh, by the way, the cue, or the clue, actually, is, uh, we'll give you a clue on that. It was not Calumet City, uh, Illinois. Uh, well, all right, all right, you think you know about the cities of America, I'll, I'll award you a brass figagee with bronze oak leaf cluster if you can tell me what Calumet City, Illinois is noted for. Uh, and, uh, I mean, nationally. In fact, Calumet City, Illinois, uh, which was right across the, the border from Hammond, uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, why did I know that idiotic, insignificant piece of, of you-know-what? Why is that stuck in my brain? Why, you know, I can't remember. If you ask me about the Battle of Agincourt, I can't tell you anything. And I studied it for about seven semesters. If you ask me about 1066 and all that, I couldn't give you any answer. But if you ask me what city <laughs> that the game of Monolope was based on, just like that, it comes out. Talk about a head for trivia. And uh, for those of you who are interested, the city was Pensacola, Florida. And now uh, we continue. Uh, speaking of uh, trivia, do you have a little button in there to press, Fred, with the money thing there? There it comes. Miller High Life in Pop and Pour Cans. Distinctive Miller High Life in Pop and Pour Cans. Just pop and pour Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. No opener needed. And inside every can, enjoy the hearty yet light goodness of Miller High Life. Brewed from a century-old recipe, only in Milwaukee. Miller High Life always gives you that perfect taste in beer every time. Always a bright, clear taste. Unequaled, unquestioned, unchanging. Now you can enjoy refreshing Miller High Life in Pop and Pour cans. Pop and Pour Miller High Life. Always sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Now in Pop and Pour cans. Rasma, Rasmataz, Rudy, Rudy Toot. Yes, uh, and Barack. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, there was another game that came out a couple of semesters ago. In fact, uh, I did a thing on the air about it, and large numbers of people wrote me, and they didn't believe that there was such a game. And uh, and the name of the game, I forget now the exact name, but it was something like uh, Comsimp or Commie Doop. <laughs> yeah, it was a John Birch game. 
uh, John Burt Society game, and the family was supposed to sit around and play uh, Detect the Commie. And uh, everybody had, had uh, clue cards and, and all kinds of things called uh, ComSimp. Uh, they had uh, various designations called, uh, uh, <laughs> called commun Communist Dupe, called uh, Red Fink. Uh, various other things, and you, you were supposed to sit around and play this game, and, and it was the advertisements read that it was educational for the kiddies. And uh, I suppose, you know, the little markers that you have in any game that goes around, the little markers, I suppose that the markers in this one were little statues of liberty and uh, little uh, American flags, plastic, of course, and little uh, teapot domes that you moved around. You know, speaking of games, uh, one of the games that I wonder how many of us uh, were, were brought up on the automobile racing games, I think of, of all the games that kids played when I was a kid, when I was working as when I when I was actually uh, what what you could call an overt kid when I was working as a kid, uh, you know, making the scene, and admitted I was a kid. One of the uh, one of the games that we always played, Bob. Did you ever play this game? You have the kind with the board that folds out, and it has a track running around it. And it has grandstands uh, on the track. Of course, they, they weren't real. It was just printed on their grandstands and it had infield and all that stuff. And you got this card that you spin, and there were four people could play it. And they were given little lead racers. Yeah, a red one and a green one, a yellow one, a blue one. Yeah, four or five racers. And you'd, you'd spin the thing and you'd move one space, two spaces. Or then you'd say, have flat tire, return to pit, miss one turn. You remember? Or ran out of gas, miss two turns. And the whole ob object was to reach the was to reach the finish line. And the name of the game was something like Indianapolis 500, or or they called it Racer, something like that. And I wonder how many guys are racing up the turnpike right at this minute now, driving their their Mercury with their ears folded back and their eyes mere slits as they peer into the darkness ahead, and they're still playing that same game, Indy 500. Move forward two spaces, go back one move, miss one turn. You are, hey, hey, come on, watch me. Here, that means music. <laughs> oh, man. I can't read that. You're going to have to hold it up so I can read it. Don't wave it at me. There we go. Oh, boy. I wonder how, much you, how many of us are, are, actually, are actually affected by the games we play. And forever, from the time we're seven, we are playing that game in one way or another. I wonder how many kids who, have, who at the age of seven played Monolopy and are still trying to buy Atlantic Avenue and the Waterworks. And are still getting the card that says, you have just, your aunt just died, inherit $50. Now, speaking of elderly aunts that are about to die, this is WOR, AM and FM in New York. And Bob, hit the gizmo in there, please. Never pick up a stranger. Don't put your car in danger. Now's the time, the right time to change her. Pick up Prestone and a freeze. Even if your car Never has anti pick up a stranger. Pick up Prestone and a freeze. Prestone and a freeze coolant is a product of Union Carbide. Very good, very good. Even if your car has antifreeze now, left over from last year, play it safe, man. Get a fresh fill now of Prestone antifreeze with its exclusive magnetic film. World's most tested, most trusted brand. Don't take chances with a substitute. Remember, never pick up a stranger. Is that it? We got it there? Oh, yeah, well, there's another game called Dream Date Game. 
uh, dream date game. Uh, I've seen that game where, where uh, little chicks play this game. I guess it's girls that play it. Uh, I don't imagine boys playing a game called dream date. But uh, little skinny girls with big thick glasses or big fat girls with skinny glasses play a game called dream date in which they vicariously have all these fantastic dates. You know, they, they spin the pointer. It says, you have just been appointed prom queen. Kenny has asked you to be his date that night. Move forward two spaces. And then there's this one where they spin it. It says, you are pregnant. Miss one turn. Go back three spaces. <laughs> you know, speaking of that, uh, for those of you who, who don't have the, uh, the occasion to... You know, I have long said... Uh, for better or for worse, I have long, I've long had the, the, uh, the theory that the stuff which is given to people on a mass-produced home basis, you know, the home-type shows, the shows which are always dedicated to the family, on these shows is where you will find the totally lascivious, the truly lascivious, seriously. Uh, have, how long has it been since you've read any of the home uh, magazines, the home so beautiful, spotless, Simon clean uh, as the driven snow. Let me tell you, there's more clinical stuff about good old S.E.X. than you will ever find in six years of reading Playboy. Uh, and and, the, and it's, always, it's always written under the guise of, of the doctor answers the questions, you know, or, or it's written under the, the psychologist answers the parents' questions. Like, for example, as a typical, typical question says, my daughter Barbie is pregnant by our, my husband. Now, uh, oh yeah, all oh, that kind of thing. Now, doctor, what do you, th what will this do to my, <laughs> oh, that's the kind of stuff you're constantly reading. So, so, uh, no one ever says anything about this. Well, the other day I had occasion to look at a soap opera on the afternoon. No, I was just, I was very interested to see what's going on on, on afternoon television. And it is a thousand times worse than you would ever suspect. Incredible stuff. They've got a rock and roll surfer soap opera now. Do you know that? That opens up with all these people. You know, you see their old bottoms swinging. And, and, and the opening looks like it's made of a whole bunch of film clips left over from old, uh, old Valentine beer commercials. You know those beer commercials of the beach party? where the, the guys are always running around kicking the football and, and reaching down into the pan of ice to, to pick up the beer can, and you see all these chicks running. Well, well it opens up like that, and uh, then, of course, they quickly fade into the little, the little uh, study, the study that all soap operas take place in. There's a standard soap opera set, which is usually lined with books, and uh, this is the Father's Den study, uh, just that amorphous room that denotes money. It's the kind of room that very few people ever have in their house, but you know it's the room where you, you, you look over in the background, you see some rare piece of Egyptian art sort of fading off into the background, a lot of books all over the wall, leather-covered, and uh, there's usually a globe somewhere in the distance there. And this is where father has heart-to-heart -heart talks with daughter, or mother has heart-to-heart -heart talks with son, which is what most soap operas consist of endlessly, heart-to-heart -heart talks. <laughs> and, uh, and this one was father having a heart-to-heart -heart talk with his daughter. Now, we know that everybody in a soap opera has a fantastic trouble. That's always a problem with that, everybody in a soap. And uh, this girl was outstandingly beautiful. She was a beautiful girl. And I can remember the days when, when uh, girls, daughters, if they were having trouble in a soap opera, it was usually because they, were, they, were, uh, uh, they had some kind of a physical problem or something like that. 
uh, or their mother had died and they were an orphan and they came from the wrong side of the tracks and things like that. Well, this the new problem, friends. Are you aware that the new problem in the soap opera world is a problem that I think is kind of funny and kind of interesting and we can kind of relate with it. This girl was very unhappy because she's serious. Her problem was that she's a serious person. And, of course, she's living in the world of surfers and the behinds that swing and, uh, you know, and guys that drink beer and yell and holler and listen to Beatle records. And, and she was having a heart-to-heart talk with her father, and she was very worried because she's serious. And she said, you know, Dad, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do because I want to do something important with my life. I w- I'm, I'm a serious person. And the father, uh, <laughs> the father sitting there, and he is telling her, he says, now, now Barbie, you are only 17 once. And go out and swing, Barbie. This is the time to swing and make the scene big. Why don't you do like your sister Sheila? Uh, Sheila, by the way, was held up as the epitome of the people who knew how to live great because she was pregnant by Rick, who, not married, of course, she was pregnant by Rick, who worked in the garage as a sports car mechanic and spent all of his evenings down at the beach uh, surfing and yelling and hollering. And everybody in the soap opera, there was a time, of course, when if an unmarried girl was, uh, was with child, as we say in Victorian terminology, uh, this was the sign for a lot of weeping and wailing. You know, everybody was worried about that. But not in this soap opera. In fact, they applauded it. And now that she was with child by Rick, everyone knew that this would be the best thing for Rick. That, uh, that now she could talk Rick into quitting the garage and going to college. No one ever mentioned, though, how the devil Rick was going to afford college at that point. But he could now go to college and become serious, too. You see, he, he could go on to a fantastic career. And, and, and the one thing Rick has always needed would be a solid girl who could have children by him out of wedlock. And so as, the, as, the, as this little episode ended, Father is telling Barbie... Uh, the younger sister, the one who didn't, you know, make the scene that way. He was saying, why don't you look at Sheila? Sheila knows how to live. Bum, 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 bum. Today's episode of Whoopie Land is brought to you by Blue Cheer with the new magic ochre-colored ingredient. Bum, 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 bum. Tomorrow Against the Storm continues with the following quotation. Oh, Charles, Charles, please. No, not now. We, we, we should wait until we get married. What do you mean, get married? Are you an old-fashioned flubbity-dub? Bam, 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 bam. Yes, tomorrow, more problems of life and times. Now, now, if you think I'm making this up, I suggest tomorrow afternoon. Uh, what? Now, I, I would like to submit this, that if anybody ever came out with a play with that fantastic kind of inversion of morality, uh, he would be black. Richard, Richard Watts would, would just be completely flabbergasted by that, and Walter Kerr would just raise his eyebrows. But this is going out every day as family entertainment. That's the point I'm making. Uh, who cares? I don't care what their morality is, one way or the other. But I've always felt that the Doris Day movies are far more purient, far more purient than anything that is being shown in the little 8-millimeter underground-type movies, which are constantly being banned. Seriously. Uh, and, and the most recent one, of course, was, uh, was this Burton Elizabeth Taylor opus that played amid the Rockettes over here. It was one of the most fascinating inversions of morality I've ever seen in my life. But nevertheless, as family entertainment. 
Uh, on the other hand, have you noticed that, that when people talk about Playboy, for example, they all want to ban Playboy just because the picture of a girl looking out of the shower, you know? <laughs> a miserable picture. Well, while we're on the subject of miserable pictures, let's see. We've got here... Uh, oh, yeah, we've got... Oh, yes. Here's a note. I'm, I'm instructed to tell you that Patsy McCann... It's the third generation of McCanns that's going to make their debut here on WOR. And... Uh, and she's going to start. When is she going to start? She's got a show starting at, uh, let's see, October 2nd, 2.15 to 4, Patsy McKinn. Well, I'm, I'm not going to advocate it. I'm not going to tell you it's a great show or anything. I haven't heard it yet. So I don't know. I will tell you one thing. Al McCann, her father, is one of the great unconscious humorists of all time. Uh, <laughs> and I think Patsy has, uh, shares the same obscurantism as the rest of the family. But nevertheless, this will be October 2nd, 2.15 to 4. Uh, this, this is the only radio station I ever heard, uh, ever heard in my life, believe me, that has dynastic control. Uh, we're on now our fourth generation of, uh, of gamblings in the morning. We are starting on our third generation of McCanns. <coughs> oh, boy. Uh, no, it's true. I'm serious. And, and, uh, huh? Oh, well, it's not quite nepotism. No, 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 that's not nepotism at all. Nepotism would be if all of leaders' relatives were on the air. That's nepotism. No, no, that's a different thing. Uh, no, no, this is, this is just dynastic control. Uh, <laughs> gee whiz, wow. You know, there are, we have at least seven other gamblings that are working out in the, in the bullpen. We're, we're fit for gamblings now, we figure, till about 2270 right now. Unless some unforeseen thing happens and they start, you know, who knows. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I, I was uh, tempted tonight uh, to tell my... Oh, let's do one more commercial here. We've got another one. We've got Happiness, uh, my my uh, old Chinese restaurant friend. Happiness, which is between 93rd and 94th on uh, Broadway. And it's a new and different kind of Chinese restaurant. And they serve all the best food from Sichuan, Shanghai, Peking, and Canton. And this, the prices are embarrassing, as a matter of fact. And I find it myself one of the most uh, one of the most pleasant Chinese restaurants I know of in town. And they have, uh, oh well, as a matter of fact, they have all the standard Chinese food, but they also have food from various provinces of China. For example, Sichuan, which is highly spiced. Uh, this stuff does not, uh, yeah, oh wow, it uh, it burns, man. And I happen to like hot food. And uh, I think you'll find uh, happiness between 93rd and 94th, a good restaurant. It's in the middle of a swinging neighborhood. The prices are great, and they have a bar, okay? And uh, we also have with us tonight Rover Motor Car. And I would like to recommend to those of you who don't know anything about this car, pick up a copy of the current issue, November 1965, Road Test. You will find on the cover... A, uh, a picture of the Rover Grill. It's just a Rover Grill. And inside, I will read to you what they say. They say, uh, in the first issue of Road Test, our headline for the Rover 2000 test, does the world's finest car cost only $4,000, may have sounded a bit uh, superlative, but it was based on a point-by-point -point analysis of the car's superb engineering and construction features, plus those boasted by other automobiles in the same price category both foreign and domestic, and a look at the cost of the other cars which could compare in technical achievements. The result 
net result was a conviction that there is no car in the world which competes directly with the 2000 in all its features. The one which comes the closest to it in benefits is almost a thousand dollars higher in price, and most of the rover's attributes are wholly unique, being unavailable at any cost on any machine. And if you don't know anything about the superb Rover 2000, I would suggest you find out as soon as possible if you're thinking of buying a car. The new 1966 Rovers are in, and you can see it here in Manhattan at DeLangton Limited, which is at 518 West 51st Street, so over on West 51st, in the middle of Foreign Car Road. That's DeLangton Limited. By the way, they, one of, they're one of the oldest motor cars in the world. They make this, the, the fantastic Rover Land Rover. Great car, and I'm waiting delivery for mine. You know, let me tell you sometime uh, in, in, in a future show, which I, I'm not going to do tonight, about the time that I almost was able to get my hands on a Rover turbine car. You know, they have been doing most of the turbine research in the world, and I almost was able to get one. came within a, uh, within a gnat's ear of uh, owning a fantastic Rover turbine. Which is a, you know, I, I, uh, tonight I, I thought I'd like to do the story of, of my, the, the fantastic liver hang up. And, uh, no, I, I, I don't want to do it tonight. I'm going to save that for the, for the limelight. No, I'm going to save the, the, uh, the liver story for the limelight. And it's a perfect story for the limelight. And, uh, it's, it's a story that I once told, oh, I told this story about five years ago on the air, and I still get letters from people about it about why Shepard has a hang-up on fried liver, why I like liver, and how I was converted. Uh, up, to, up to a certain point, I hated liver in all forms, and how all of a sudden I became a fantastic liver fan. And, and I, will, I will do that story this week on the Limelight Show. You know, speaking of, uh, speaking of stories, uh, you, you, you hear these stories. I've told many stories about when I was a kid, and uh, people have a tendency to think that most stories are made up. Well, I'd like to submit here, I have a couple of clips from various newspapers around the country of involving kids and stories and little incidents that happened to them that uh, would pass in the night, except I think that most people don't have much of a memory for what actually happened to them. Uh, I think, I think uh, by and large, the average flotsam, the average bit of jetsam, in this great human Sargasso Sea, has a built-in eraser, a built-in tape recorder eraser, so that as you go, most people can't remember last Wednesday, much less remember when they were ten. You know, and 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 for that reason, a great mythological world is created about how when you were ten years old, and uh, most people base what their childhood was on on stories and things that they have read about other childhoods. Uh, they assume that they used to stand around and throw snowballs at guys wearing high silk hats. This is one of the great cliches. Or they, they uh, drew pictures of the teacher on the blackboard and got into trouble. Or there was a kid with red hair and freckles who was the, the Huck Finn of your class, and he was always playing jokes on people. Uh, you know that mischievous kid uh, myth? I never knew a mischievous kid. Uh, but uh, they constantly pop up in fiction. I'll never forget one of the great critiques I've, I've read. Uh, somebody wrote a, a, a nice critique of, uh, of Mark Twain and about how Mark Twain had invented a total childhood that had nothing in relationship, no relationship at all, to the real world that was inhabited by kids of that time. 
That's the, the Huck Finn or the Tom Sawyer syndrome, uh, which, uh, in which you create a kind of, uh, uh, well, you create a kind of seven dwarf kid right out of Disneyland. And, uh, and for that reason, it's uh, totally unreal. But listen to this story here. So here's a note here. It says, uh, Champaign, Illinois. Now, I don't know whether you know anything about Champaign, Illinois, but Champaign, all of the, all of the Midwest has certain spooky qualities to it that uh, is not often spoken of by people out here in the East who, by and large, generally think that, uh, that the country ends right near the eastern shore of the Hudson. And it picks up again about 45 feet west of, the, of runway number three at the Los Angeles airport. And all that rest of the stuff that they fly over there, that the, the, all that undulating country down there, is inhabited only by wheat fields, corn fields, and members of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, <laughs> but uh, there's, a, there's a lot going on out there. And here's, here's, here's a little note from Champaign, Illinois. It says, a show-and-tell session at a Champaign grade school was enlivened when Terry Clark, Jr. showed up with a human skull. And nothing to say about it. He said a friend, Mike White, had given it to him. <laughs> Mike gave it to Terry. See, he showed up with this big skull. Police questioning Mike White were told that another friend, Mike Severns, had given it to him. This Mike's mother, Mrs. B. Severns, told police that Mike's grandfather had given the boy the skull, explaining that it had been the property of an aunt, now dead. Just what the aunt was doing with the skull... Mrs. Severn said, is a mystery. A hospital pathologist examining the skull looked at it and said it was very old. It was returned to the Severn's family. And the mystery still remains. No one knows where the aunt got the skull. Well, now, now that kid, uh, 15 years from now, is going to tell people about how the time he took the skull to school. And he got it from this guy, Mike. And this guy, Mike, when the police put the whammy on him, said that he got it from a friend of his called Mike, who got it from their aunt, who was now dead, and no one knew where the skull came from. And people are going to laugh about this. But nevertheless, there it is. Now, here, here's one in Levittown. It says, like something off the pages of Jules Verne, the balloon landed in a field yesterday near Lafayette Elementary School. It was big and red, and three people rode in the basket. And about 300 people were attracted to the scene to stare at the unusual sight. The balloon travelers, someone in the crowd said, were from Philadelphia. After it landed, the three persons made a phone call, and three more balloonists arrived in a car. They changed places, and the balloon soared up over the Delaware River above Burlington and disappeared. Well, now, there's going to be a kid tell a story about the time the balloon landed in the schoolyard. Well, that reminded me of the time that... that I'm sitting in school. We were all in second grade. Now, I, I'm sitting there, and it's right after, it's right after uh, recess in the afternoon. And now, our school let out about 3.30, something like that, and it would get dark. Of course, at this time of the year, they don't have daylight savings time. I think daylight savings time is already off out in the Midwest. But about this time of the year, it gets dark. It starts to get really dark out there about, oh, 3.30, quarter to 4, 4.30, 5 o'clock. It starts getting dark and dark. And it's pitch black usually by about 5.30 at night. And so just before school would let out, you could see these gloomy shadows hanging over everything. And, uh, and already, uh, I remember this distinctly because we were, we were hard at work on pumpkins and stuff. And Miss, Miss Shields already had the first cutout paper turkey 
hanging on the on the wall there to remind us that it was Thanksgiving time coming and all that stuff. And it's all fall time, and the kids are all sitting in class, and the, it's just sort of humming along like that. And outside it was kind of gray and dark and cold, and the wind is blowing in off the lake. And and we were just sitting there in the afternoon after recess, kind of rest of everybody sort of sort of uh, still still out there in the yard. But now we're sitting there, and Miss Shields is reading Raggedy Ann and Raggedy Andy. When all of a sudden, from off in the distance, could be the sound, a hum coming, just the sound of an airplane. Now, we were on the direct path, the town that I lived in, we were on the direct path to the municipal airport in Chicago. And all the airplanes that came from the east came directly over this school all the time. So there were always airplanes roaring over. And they would, they would start their letdown about there. And so the airplane was an extremely uh, u- usual sight. We saw airplanes all the time, big uh, tri-motors and all the DC-3s and all that coming in there. And so nobody really made much of a thing about an airplane, except that the airplane was never seen close up. You, you just saw them flying over all the time. And one of the big things that we would do on a Sunday afternoon, my old man's idea of a really big Sunday afternoon, was to pile everybody in the car and drive to the municipal airport to watch airplanes land. And, uh, yeah, we'd stand there, and, and it'd be cold, and then you'd see one coming, circling in, and he'd come laying out, and he'd come into the... And the old man would crowd up to the fence, and all the rest of the people would crowd, and we would watch the people get off of the airplanes. And they would come down those aluminum steps, and they'd be wearing sunglasses and looking hard-bitten and as though they were sophisticated, cool, blasé world travelers, and they all were, all were pretending they were movie stars and stuff. And we would watch all these people getting off the plane. Nobody ever thought in the crowd of actually flying in one. It was something that important people did, uh, flying in these big airplanes. Just like I'm sure uh, large numbers of people in today's world don't think in terms of flying to Europe. Just going out to the airport and laying your money down and taking off for Europe, just like that. It's something that important official people do. And you hear commercials on the air about it all the time. And it's, it's relating to a totally different part of the population than you're in. I wonder how many people listening right now feel that way. And yet, yet there, there, are, there are hundreds of people, thousands, right, really, within, within the, about a 40-block radius of WOR, who think no more of getting into an airplane on a Wednesday night to fly to Paris then the average person would think of getting in his car and driving to Trenton. And uh, that's, of course, all part of this changing flying world. But in those days, everyone would look, watch the planes come in, and those who rode in the planes would tell about it for weeks afterwards, months on end. As a matter of fact, I remember one of the big things that happened in our family was Aunt Teresa once took an airplane to California, and uh, she got all the folders, and in those days, they used to give folders. In the airplane, you'd get in the airplane, and they had all folders like, here are facts about your trip, and uh, send the cards home. And, oh, yeah, they, they had all those bags so that you erp, you know, you could, you could, and you could send that home for souvenir and everything. Just it had postage on it. And, and all that stuff was very important, you see. And <laughs> my Aunt Teresa, whenever she would come over, uh, when she was ready for a big Sunday afternoon at the house, would bring her... Clipping her, her scrapbook with all of her cutouts and all of her little cards and stuff that she got on the American Airlines flight to California. And she would tell us how the airplane landed and what they said and what kind of food they served 
and uh, what color the airplane was inside and about the nice man who sat across the aisle from her who was an important insurance broker from Omaha and always rode airplanes. She said it was amazing. He, he said that he rode airplanes as much as one or two times a year. He was always riding them. And uh, about how the stewardess came back and took care of the little kid. And my Aunt Teresa had all these long stories, and we were always fascinated. So nobody ever put her down. You know, she was the only one who'd ever ridden in a real plane. And so on this afternoon, we're sitting in, in, the, in the school, and this airplane's going over. And we hear the sound of this airplane coming. And, but this is a little different sound. It's getting louder and louder. It's getting louder and louder and louder until the entire room is filled with the sound of this fantastic, tremendous, overwhelming airplane roar. And Miss Shields ran over to the... I remember her running from behind her desk. And she ran over to the window. And, you know, we had these big uh, Venetian blind type things. She throws the Venetian blinds up. And just as she threw the Venetian blinds up, we saw this airplane coming directly at our second grade school, right at our window. And it was a, bi a single-winged uh, single airplane. It was, a, it was a monoplane. And this guy comes skimming right over the yard. He just went, Wah! And he pulled up at the last instant, and we heard this tremendous boom, boom. You just heard that sound go boom, boom on the roof of the building. He hit the top of the building with his landing gear. We had one of these big, long, flat, portable-type schools. Have you ever seen those? Those long, flat-roof, single-story single uh, wooden-frame schools. It's all painted white. And his, his wheels hit the top of the building. It just went boom. Boom. And everybody in the class is a fantastic uproar. You could hear the whole school yelling and hollering. And everybody roared and poured out of the school. I remember getting up and running down the, down the aisle. All the kids are running out. Miss Shields is trying to keep order, and she's running out. Miss Norton, Miss Robinette, and all the teachers are pouring out. And the instant we got out, we saw this plane make a big swoop over the... We had a swamp and a, and a kind of a woods to the side of the building. He made a big swoop to the, uh, over the woods, his wing down. He made a big turn, and he came down right on the ball field. He just came, and there he was. He taxied right across second base. That, that back end, that big yellow tail swirled around, and he's kicking up a tremendous amount of dust and dirt and everything else. And then the plane is just taxiing. See, it stopped. Well, I can't tell you the, the, the excitement. There, every kid in the school is out. There were a, a thousand kids. We're all out around this airplane, and the door opened, and out stepped this guy with a leather jacket and goggles. Leather jacket and goggles. He had on these high pants. He had on these, these high putties. He stepped out, and he looked around, and he said, Who's in charge? Well, Miss Norton, the school principal, who had, who had the silver stainless steel hair, and he, she had the only cast-iron girdle, I think, ever in, in the history of girdle-wearing. Miss Norton says, I am. He said, well, would you please tell me where I can get some gasoline? And Miss Norton took charge, and all the kids stood there with their mouths hanging open. And sure enough, the school janitor drives off in his little truck, 
and he comes back with a large number of cans of gas with this flyer, and they're pouring the gas in the top of the airplane. None of us had ever seen guys pour gas in an airplane. And they're pouring gas at the top. All the kids are standing there. Holy smokes, and it's getting darker and darker, and the, the wind is blowing, and you can see the clouds hanging over there. It's getting, getting near towards the time when school should be out. And finally, the flyer says, all right, now, all of you back off there and stand over there by the road there. We're going to try to take off. Now stand back. Which way is the wind? And he, he measured the wind, and all of us are watching this. Here is here is Ted Scott himself, you know. This is this is all the great flyers in history. And he's standing right there on, on, on the Warren G. Harding playground, and he's measuring the wind, and he gets into his little airplane. And sure enough, he tackles, tacks out across the outfield, makes a big spin. Off he goes. And the crowd roared. He made one great big circle over the school. He dipped his wings, and off he went in the direction of Chicago. They have not yet forgotten that in Hessville, Indiana. The time the little Curtis Robin landed on the schoolyard at Warren G. Harding. And, and for a long time afterwards, we preserved the tracks where his, his plane ran over second base and over the infield and back of home plate there. And the kids would come out and look at those tracks. And Warren G. Harding School had its one brief moment in the sun. Let Morton's school match that.